the, the land and the sea and the vegetation and the trees and the plants and the animals and that the height of his creation act was to form man in his own image designed to just reflect the image of God to all of creation. In the beginning God, that's Genesis. But Genesis as a book closes on a whole other note. It's in the beginning God and at the end it's a coffin, a coffin in the land of Israel. And between the beginning and the coffin, uh, Genesis tells us the story of sin and corruption and death and how that came to, to the earth and corrupted God's design. And into that account is the story of a man of faith by the name of Abraham who entered into a personal relationship a personal covenant with the living God. God promised to bless him, to bless his offspring, to multiply him so that his offspring would be like the stars of the heaven. God uh, promised that he would give him a land of his own for him and his people, the land of Canaan. But before that would happen, Genesis chapter 15 says this, that a great darkness came over Abraham. And the Lord told him, that he should know for certain that his offspring would be sojourners in a land that was not their own and that they would be servants there and that they would spend 400 years there. And then after that, God would lead them out to a place where they would be led uh, to worship him. And so Genesis tells us, Abraham became the father of Isaac and Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob had 12 sons, one of whom was his beloved son, Joseph. And Joseph, uh, uh, loved by his father, was afflicted by his brothers. As we know, the Bible tells us they took him, they seized him, and in jealousy, they sold him into slavery. He was carted off uh, to the land of Egypt. Uh, it appeared that life was over for him, but in the midst of all that, God was working a divine, sovereign plan for the sa salvation of the, the descendants of Abraham. And Joseph was raised uh, to that second seat, that second place of authority in the land of Egypt. And when famine and drought came upon that land, God used Joseph not only to save the Egyptians, uh, but to save his own descendants. And his father and his brothers became known to Pharaoh. We know as the Bible tells us that they came down to the land of Egypt. Uh, there was 75 in all, including Joseph and his family. And Pharaoh gave to the descendants of Jacob the land of Goshen in Egypt. So one man, Abraham, enters by faith into a covenant with the Almighty God. And God begins to unfold his plan to make a people for himself. A nation called to serve him. And so Genesis starts in the beginning, but it ends with a coffin. And we pick it up in Exodus. It says this in verse 1. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died and his brothers and all of that generation, but the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. 
Interesting that in the original language in which the Exodus account is written in Hebrew, it begins with this word, actually, a conjunction, and. They don't put it in in the English language. But it's telling us this, that this is a continuation of the book of Genesis. This is a continuation of God's salvation history and his story that it will carry on. In where Genesis, you know, I would say only tells the story of the beginning and God and sin and corruption and death and God's plan and the way that he put his hand upon one man and began uh, to work. Exodus, as it begins to tell us the story of the deliverance of God's people from slavery in the land of Egypt, really lays out a lot of the theology that is in the Bible, a lot of things that we come to know and understand that the Bible teaches are rooted uh, in the account of Exodus. And so it's a fascinating uh, book that we're going to be going through over the next little while here. Our comprehension of the gospel and our comprehension of theology, our understanding of God is totally rooted in many of the things that are taught in the book of Exodus. Uh, Our understanding of the cross our understanding of what Passover is rooted here. And so we read that in Exodus, God began to just bless the descendants of Jacob, that they multiplied. In fact, the Bible tells us that by the time 400 years was over, that time that they had spent in the land of Egypt, as we're going to get there, uh, Israel, the men uh, over the age of 20, actually numbered at 600,000 men plus women and children. And so the estimates are that they were a a group of people, a nation of people that was uh, somewhere between two and three million descendants. Now, uh, that's pretty amazing. You know, it seems like a lot of people, but that's actually only a 6% growth rate over 400 years. Now, I bet when you sat down with your mutual fund advisor, uh, they promised you much better than 6% return, right? on your investment portfolio. But this is the power of compound interest with God's people as he begins to multiply. 70, 75 with Joseph and his family is made into two or three million. Think of it this way. If it was two and a half million people, just get this picture in your mind, and you stood them five abreast, five across, and you were to march them out of the land of Egypt that train would stretch for 175 kilometers. Not only that, but the Bible says that with them, when they did get to the Exodus, as we're going to get there in a few weeks, that they brought with them their livestock, their animals, and that there were many Egyptians that, that joined them. And so we don't know how far that train stretched, but there was a lot of people. God truly uh, blessed them. Egypt was at least for a while, a good place for the descendants of Israel. Goshen, the land that they were given, was a a fertile area along the Nile River, and they experienced there the blessing of God, the multiplication of the Lord. It says in verse 8, Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. Now, I would say this. Joseph really served the purposes of God in his generation. God used him to save all of the people of Egypt. Not only that, to save his own family and to draw them, the descendants of Jacob, to Egypt. Uh, you know, Egypt, or sorry, the Isra- Egypt at that time was really a, a world power. They were probably the, the greatest 
nation in the world at that point in time. And through the wisdom and knowledge and the blessing of God that was upon the life of Joseph, um, he rose to this position of second in command and he, he saved uh, the nation. But not only did he do that in the process, Joseph put more and more power into the hands of Pharaoh. You know, as the, the people were starving, they sold their land, they sold themselves, they sold their livestock, and the grip of Pharaoh was strengthened in the land of Egypt. But the fact is, is this. Nobody ever remembers who comes in second. Nobody remembers who played the role of second fiddle like Joseph did. Except there's one exception to that rule. Vancouver Canucks fans. I was thinking about that. You know, we remember 82 and 94 and 2011 when we played second fiddle. And kind of like Canucks fans, uh, the children of Israel remembered Joseph. And in the similar way that we recount game seven in 1994, or that we recount game seven in 2011, and we tell those stories to our children, <laughs> they would tell the story of Joseph to their children. They hadn't forgotten, but Egypt had forgotten. See, the people of Israel had come to Egypt as welcome guests of the government. In some ways, you know, the red carpet had been rolled out to them because of their family connections. But they were kind of like the guest who never knows when it's time to go home. <laughs> That's what I would say. They had outstayed their welcome in the sight of the Egyptians. Now, why did they stay so long? Well, it's really, I think, a two-part answer to that. There's a human answer to that. There's a divine answer to reason why they stayed so long. On the human side of the coin, you know, the answer is comfort. Life was good in Egypt. Fertile in the land of Goshen. There was blessing. It was comfortable. And I would say this, you know, life can be good in Gibsons. It's comfortable. Especially this time of year, you know, the sun starts, like the days get long, it's beautiful out, we're outside. Boy, this is a comfortable place. And it's a human thing, you know, to slide into that place of comfort, spiritually speaking, as well, too. And in some ways, you know, Israel had slid into this place of comfort, and what's about to happen to them was some of their own doing in a certain sense. And, you know, it's a... It's a real thing that as human beings, what we often do is put ourselves in a certain place and then we blame God for not responding when we've created the mess. And in a certain sense, you know, the human side, that was what was happening with them. But also on the divine side of the, the coin was this. There was a problem in the land of Canaan where the Israel was going to eventually go to possess. And it was this, these people called the Canaanites. Now, often people open the Bible and they read areas like Joshua and the judges and some of those places, and they say, what's with this God whom you claim to serve? He's a murderer. He's crazy. He sends people in and he says, wipe, wipe out the, the countries and the nations and the people group that are there. What, what's the deal? I don't want to serve a God like that. He's not loving. And I would say that's a very incomplete understanding of the God of the universe. It's missing many of the pieces of the puzzle that the Bibles, that the scripture actually gives us. See, God is loving. God is merciful. God is gracious. In fact, God is so gracious that he kept the people of Israel in Egypt for 400 years, allowing 400 years for the Canaanites to come to the place of repentance before him. 
400 years, the people in Canaan had the chance to get right with God. But the Bible actually tells us something about that group of people, that they became increasingly wicked, that they increasingly turned from God, that so great was their wickedness that it was a common, common practice with all of them to sacrifice their own children, uh, to, to hurt one another. So God actually demonstrated great patience. You know, even today, some would question, where is God in this coming that he's promised? And to that, the word of God tells us God is patient and he is not willing that any should perish, that all, but that all should come to repentance. See, when God comes, when God's presence entered the land of Israel with the people of God, sin and rebellion and wickedness and godlessness had to be dealt with. And when King Jesus comes, the equation will be the same. And so God in his love, in his patient mercy, in his grace is not willing that any should perish. The word of God tells us all day long, he holds out those nail scarred hands to a world that rejects him and despises him and who is unrepentant. And God is desiring in his love that the world would turn in repentance towards him. Now Israel... Egypt guests had worn out their welcome. It, it happened, you know, that Egypt was never meant to be the eternal home of these people. And, you know, I would say this, my friends, as Christians, as followers of Jesus Christ, there's a time when the same thing happens for us, spiritually speaking. At some point, the people of God will wear out their welcome in this world. At some point, the people of this world will say to the people of God, we've had enough of you and we've had enough of your Jesus. And unlike the residents of Goshen, you know, or, or like the residents of Goshen, you know, we risk the allurement of comfort. That comfort causes us to get a little too settled in this world that is not our home in this body that is not our eternal home. This is a, a perishable uh, natural, weak body, and the word of God tells us that we are going to inherit a mansion, an eternal home, a body that is imperishable, that is glorious and powerful. This is not our home. Now it says here in, in verse 9 of Exodus chapter 1, and he said to his people, this is Pharaoh speaking, behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them lest they multiply, and if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over, taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread because of the people of Israel. So, ruthless, so they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and they made their lives bitter with hard service and mortar and brick and all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Now during the 400 years that the people of Israel were in the land of Egypt, uh, the Egyptian dynasties, history tells us, actually came under the power of a different group of people between the 13th and the 18th uh, dynasty, a group of people Asia, a, from Asia called the Hyksos. 
And the Hyksos gained control over the throne of Egypt and the land of Egypt. And finally, when Egypt and Pharaoh got their hands back upon the control of their nation and their people, they looked around and they saw, they pinpointed the people of Israel and they said this, look at this, there, there's millions of people here. We're going to have another problem all over here again. You know, the land of Goshen stands between us and Asia and all of Europe and that whole area. And it, should some come, people group come again, the Israelites could potentially, uh, you know, join forces with them and we'd be in real trouble. So we need a solution. And so they planned to shrewdly force the people of Israel into slavery. And we read here that the workload was brutal. That the Egyptian hand upon the people of God was heavy and it was oppressive and, and crazy. But to imagine this, I mean, it, it's hard to even picture this, but there was such an army of slaves that they built two cities for the Egyptian. Python and Ramses. Life was bitter. You remember that when, when Joseph brought his family to Egypt and he introduced his father Jacob to Pharaoh, he, he told him the fact that Jacob was a shepherd and the Bible tells us that the Egyptians despised shepherds. They wanted nothing to do. So they, they said, you have Goshen, it's all yours. Go live there. Even in the account of Joseph meeting his brothers when he recognized them and invited them to his home for supper because he was living uh, like an Egyptian, he ate separately from his own brothers and would not eat with them because the Egyptians despised the thought of eating with the Hebrew people. See, what this allowed was that the, the people of Israel and the descendants of, of Jacob maintained their identity and their culture in the midst of living amongst the Egyptians who really wanted nothing to do with them until they began to fear their strength. Then they oppressed them. And here we read that the, the result was this. The more they were oppressed, the more God blessed. The more they multiplied, the more they spread. It's, it's like that old principle that we say about the church. The, the, blood of the, sorry, the, the blood of the martyr is the seed of the church. That when there's affliction, often God blesses. And see, the fact is, is that God was fast at work amidst his people even when things seem bleak. And you know, I, I would say to you, I don't know what's going on in your heart and, and in your life, but even when things seem bleak, that is when God is most at work. Affliction becomes the tool by which he begins to shape his people. You know, for Israel, slavery was forcing them really to be a separate people. While in Egypt, they participated in the worship the Bible tells us, of the gods of Egypt. They were called to be a monotheistic people, a, a people who worshiped the one true living God. But living in the midst of a nation that was polytheistic and had different values as a culture, uh, the people of God even began to bend the knee to the other gods that were around them. And as the, as the Egyptians pressed the Israelites into slavery and servitude, it revived something among them. It revived a return to the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Affliction was marking them as the very people of God. You know, when you read these stories, I, I would say this. It's possible to turn the story of Exodus into this allegory. 
that could be beautiful and it, and it could be good, that hidden in the midst of this account that we read, there's these, these you know, hidden meanings, that it's not just factual, that there's lots of other beautiful pictures going on here. And, and that's true, but you got to watch how far you take that. I, I was thinking about a, a number of years ago, I was on the beach with my kids and they were swimming and I was, I was yelling at Jonah, Jonah, stop drowning your brother. I think it was something like that. Jonah, Jonah, take it easy on him. Let him up. up. You know, I was just yelling at him and this lady was sitting there in a, in a good fatherly way. Uh, this lady was sitting on the beach there and uh, someone from my neighborhood and I, I'm pretty sure she knew that I was a pastor, but in between yelling, she, uh, she turned to me and she asked me this question. Hey, what is the story of Jonah? And so I told her the biblical account of the story of Jonah. And we had a bit of a conversation. And at the end, she said, wow, that's a really nice allegory. And I said, well, actually, it's not an allegory. It's a true story. See, Jesus referenced that story and he said, like Jonah was in the belly of the whale for three days and nights, so I will be in the belly of the earth until I rise again. I said, it's not a factual, it's not, a, it's not an allegory. It's a true story. And it's easy to allegorize stories like what we read in Exodus. And I would say this to you, this is not an allegory. Uh, by faith in God's word, we accept that this is fact. But that said, there are beautiful illusions in this story. We call them types. Maybe you heard that word around. There's a type, a, a pattern that we, that we see. And I would say this, Egypt is a type. It sets a pattern for us that we see in scripture. It's the pattern of the world. You know where the people of Israel, Jacob received that name, his name and his character and his identity was changed because he was a man who wrestled with God and he was called Israel. He wrestled with God. Egypt is the picture not of someone wrestling with God. Egypt is the picture of the self-reliant world that lives independent of the living God. As we go uh, further in this book, we're going to see that for the people of Egypt, the Nile River was their life. It meant for them life. See, Egypt was a land that was not watered by the heavens, and that's how it received its it's due. Egypt was watered and dependent upon the Nile River. And so what the Egyptians did was this. With their own hands, they dug canals and irrigation systems. And they watered their own land with the strength of their hands. It, it's, a, it's a picture of self-dependence. Whereas the Bible tells us this, that the land of Israel is a land of hills and valleys upon which the rain from heaven falls. And God waters it. And so it's the, the two pictures of this self-dependent land, the self-dependent life of the world versus the, the, the life that has a posture of looking up towards heaven for provision. In fact, in Deuteronomy chapter 11, the Lord tells the people of Israel that the land to which he is leading them is not like the land of Egypt. The Lord said this, the land to which I am leading you is a land that I care for and love and my eyes look upon it. 
And in Egypt, you, you watered, Deuteronomy 11, in Egypt, you watered the land with your irrigation. But the land you are going to possess is a land that God cares for, and it drinks water from heaven. It's a beautiful picture. See, God is always leading his people in this direction from self-reliance to Jesus' dependence. From a posture that looks to the earth and to its hands for provision to a posture that looks to heaven and to God for provision. And in that sense, you know, Egypt really served as a womb for the people of God. You think about it, you know, thinking about being pregnant. Thank you, God, that I've never been pregnant. But thinking about how a baby loves the womb and how it takes affliction to bring that child out. And the land of Egypt was like a womb for the people of God as he built them as a nation. And then the affliction came to drive them out. And it takes affliction to move God's people from being self-reliant and self-dependent to being dependent on God. You know, I would say this, that this is why Paul said he's willing to share in the sufferings of Christ. Was he sick in the head? What, he wants to suffer? He wants affliction? Uh, maybe he was, no, no, he wasn't sick in the head. Seriously, Paul came to understand this, that although affliction and suffering is, is not anything that a person, person should go looking for, that when it, when it comes to suffering and affliction and the taskmaster, when the taskmaster comes looking to, to make you a slave, that is a surprising place where God brings blessing and pours out a special grace. That is the place where God multiplies. That is the place where God's people turn from the worship of false gods and idolatry in a land of comfort to be revived spiritually in the sole focus of seeking the one true living God. Affliction moves the people of God from self-reliance to Jesus' dependence. And so through affliction and suffering, you know, though it should be something we should never go looking for, when it comes, we should call on God. When, when it comes looking for, when the taskmaster comes, we should do as the people of Israel did in the land of Egypt. Their heads went up and they began to call to God for a deliverer. In the midst of that, God increased the multiplication. God increased the blessing. And so in that sense, Egypt is a type of the world. We'll, we'll see through the book of Exodus, Pharaoh is kind of a type of Satan, the devil. He kind of plays that role. And Moses, of course, is a type of Jesus, a deliverer. And so with bitter hard service and mortar and in brick and in all kinds of work in the field, in all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. And God multiplied. Hard service, God multiplied. Mortar and brick, God multiplied. Work in the field, God multiplied. Ruthlessly working as slaves, the more they were pressed, the more God blessed, and the more he multiplied. And then it says in verse 15, then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of, name, one of who was named Shipra and the other named Puah. Now I have a comment here on that. 
maybe some advice that I could share. If you're trying to come up with a name for a little girl in your family, don't use Pua. <laughs> I think you can figure that out for yourself. Uh, that's, that's someone who will grow up tortured for their entire childhood. You're going to scar them for life. Don't use the name Pua, okay? <laughs> Verse 16. When you serve as a midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. This is sick. But if it's a daughter, she shall live. This is why Pharaoh is a type of Satan. You can see the picture. This is a plan that is demonic. Like Haman, who sought to kill the Jews in Babylon. Like Herod, who ordered the killing of all the baby boys in Bethlehem. Like Stalin and Hitler. This is demonic. It was a plan to stop the multiplication. You know, a plan to thwart the blessing of God upon the people of God. It, it was a plan in response to Genesis chapter 3.15 where God promised a deliverer whose heel would be struck but who would crush the head of the serpent. Now verse 17 says, But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but they let all the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this? And let the male children live. And the midwives said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. Now, I would say there's no way that there's just two Hebrew midwives uh, for the Hebrew baby, baby boom that's going on here, okay? Uh, so these ladies are probably in charge of, you know, the landed immigrant department of obstetrics. And for the government of Egypt, and they likely had many midwives working under their authority. Now, many read this, and they say this, man, what's the deal? These women lie to Pharaoh, and God blesses them. And, you know, here they, they, they recognize that he is asking them to do something that is morally and ethically wrong before God, and then say, well, they lied, and then God bless it. I actually don't think that that's what's going on here. I don't think that they're lying. I think that the Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. That they're vigorous and give birth before the midwives come. In fact, those Hebrew women were hard workers. Making bricks, mortar, working in the mines, pulling, just whatever. They worked hard. While the Egyptian women sat at home, you know, watching soaps, reading Harlequins, I don't know, surfing on Facebook, going for manis and petties and sushi afterward, okay? <laughs> the Hebrew women were slaves and they were more vigorous. They were. And I imagine that the midwives simply said, oh, Hebrew women's having a baby? Okay, take your foot off the gas on your way there. They took their time in getting there and attending those Hebrew births. And when they'd arrived, the work was all done. And we see in a number of places, you know, this was an act of civil disobedience against the government, against the king. But we see that there's, there's a number of places in the scripture where, you know, God's people act in civil disobedience to that which has been handed down by the government. Why? Because that which the government or the king is instructing goes against the laws of the king of kings. And in that place, where the law of a, nation contradicts the law of God, there's room for civil disobedience. 
And so they acted in civil disobedience towards the king and God blessed them. And it says in verse 20, so God dealt with the midwives and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. So again, God multiplies the people of Israel in the midst of this plan. And we don't have the time frame. We don't have the time frame. But it's interesting to think this. Moses, when he went into the desert, was how old? Do you remember? Come on. 40. Yeah, 40. Remember how old he was when he came back to lead the people of Egypt? 80. It was actually 430 years that the people of Israel were in slavery in the land of Egypt. And so Moses is born around the year of 350 in that process. He's born in the time when the babies are being murdered. And so we don't know how many generations it went on that those Hebrew boys were being murdered. Likely those who served as midwives had barren wombs. That's that's why they were in that role. But God healed their wombs because they feared him and they had families of their own. And so Pharaoh says this, here's another plan then. Midwives aren't going to listen to me. Uh, you're not going to listen to the mandate to kill those boys, then I'm going to instruct my entire nation, the Egyptians. You see a Hebrew woman, and if she has a son, pry him out of his hands, out of her hands, and throw him in the river. I, I mean, this is sick. This is demonic, but let the girls live. See, Satan, Satan has always hated the people of God. Do you know this? He hates your sons, and he hates your daughters. It's crazy to think about that. To just take some time to think about that, it makes you fear as a believer for the the safety of your children and and for um, the call of God upon their life. And you'd think that in the midst of what was happening for the Hebrew people, that they would just stop having children, right? Well, there's a solution, stop having children. But it was just the opposite. In, In the midst of such a threat against their offspring, God bless their wombs. Isn't that amazing? You know, you think about this. Noah knew that there was a flood coming and you know what he did besides building an ark? He had three sons. He knew that destruction was coming upon the face of the earth and you know what he did? He had three sons and he brought them with him into the ark. Now it says this in chapter 2. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took, his, took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was fi- a fine child, she hid him three months. And when she could no longer, she took for him a basket made of bul- bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. And she put the child in it and she placed it amongst the reeds on the river bank. The name of those two parents were Amram the father, and uh, Yochaved, the mother. Amram means this, an exalted people. And Yochaved it, it, is part of God's name. It means Jehovah is glory. An exalted people, Jehovah is glory. These are God-fearing parents. They saw something about this child that he was a fine child. That literally means this. Some Bible translations say that he was beautiful. 
that he was a beautiful child, that there was something physical about the nature of Moses uh, that was very special and that identified him. Josephus, the, the Jewish and Roman historian, records much of the oral history. And I'm going I'm to mention Josephus a few times here, some facts from him. But Josephus reports in his account, which is the, some of the oral history. It's not what our Bible tells us, but it's oral history, and it's interesting. He says this, that Moses' parents had a dream before their son was born, that he was a special child and that God was going to use him as a deliverer. And so whatever the deal was, whatever they saw about this child, in fear of God and in faith, Hebrews chapter 11 tells us, they hid this newborn for three months. And when she could no longer hide, her, hide him, she made for him a basket of bulrushes and daubed it with pitch and bitumen. Literally, the Hebrew word for this basket is the word ark. It, it's the same word used to describe what Noah built, an ark. So Yochavad built an ark for her son, an amazing act of, of faith that she takes that ark and she places it on the Nile River amongst the bulrushes. Of course, the, the Nile was a, a source of life for the Egyptian people at this time. It's also the place of death for the Hebrew people where many of their babies drowned. But as you consider Moses in an ark, I mean, you, you can't help but overlay the two stories, right? Noah in the ark, Moses in the ark. Neighbor commented to me this week, uh, I was out on the deck there just before the guys were coming over for, on Thursday night, and uh, I said, man, you hear the rain last night? I'm like, yeah, that was crazy. I said, it was just, it was coming sideways there. You guys Call that on Wednesday night. It seemed like it was, it was hitting the side of my house. It was bouncing off my bedroom window. I'm like, it woke me up. It was nuts. He said, yeah, that was, that was crazy. I, I thought we were going to have another Noah situation, he said to me, as he turned and started to walk away. And, and I couldn't resist myself. And I said, yeah, that's right. That's why it's important that you need to have your ark ready. <laughs> you probably thought, crazy pastor. What the heck's he talking about now? Look it. You see, when Noah built an ark... He, he put his family in that ark. They went inside and in faith, they trusted God to carry them over the seas of judgment and to lead them to a shore of safety where they would live and be blessed. And when Yochaved placed her baby in that ark, in faith, she closed the lid and by faith, she trusted the Lord to look after that child, to look after that baby. You know that Jesus is an ark? You know, in our minds, when we talk about entering into a relationship with God, we, we, we paint this picture with our words and we say this, invite Jesus Christ into your heart and into your life. And he does, he comes in. And the word of God says that the Holy Spirit seals that. In the story of Noah's account, it says that God shut the door on the ark. It's a beautiful picture. But I would love in your minds to picture this for a moment, okay? In your minds, I picture this. That you would see Jesus as an ark. See, it's not just that he enters you. But you enter into him. 
You enter into him, the ark, and the Holy Spirit seals the door, and we're carried over the chaos of this world, my friends, over the judgment that is coming upon this world, and we will be carried to the shores of eternity through our ark, Jesus. You need to have your ark ready. Now, verse 4 says, And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Likely not more than 12 years old is the kind of some of the estimates on Miriam. Verse 5, Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river. While, while her young women walked beside the river, she saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant, and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child was she saw the child and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and call a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. The Egyptians had a belief in their religious system that when they entered into the afterlife, whatever that looked like for an Egyptian, that they would be confronted with three questions. One, have you afflicted anyone? Two, did you cause anyone tears? Three, did you nurse the crying babies? And as Pharaoh's daughter opened that ark, her conscience struck her with this crying baby. She had pity on this boy. History says if the Pharaoh's daughter was barren, Josephus tells it that she at that time tried to nurse the baby herself. In fact, that she also passed this little baby to her attendants and they all tried to nurse him and he would not latch. And that was when Miriam, the little sister, piped up and said, shall I go call one of, one of the Hebrew women for you to nurse this child? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. Amazing. Amazing, the hand of God. Verse 9 says, And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. Now this is amazing, right? This is amazing. Moms, how would you love that, right? I mean, this is better than the EI program, okay? This is... Pharaoh's daughter paying you to raise and nurse your own child. It's beautiful. It's awesome. Now, we don't know the details. The Bible doesn't tell us, but let's speculate for a minute. Amram and Yochaved, they received their son back, in a sense, from the dead. Do you get this picture? In the ark, Jesus said, as Jonah was in the ark for three days and nights, so I'll come out of the belly there. Moses, placed in the ark, he's brought out. He's brought out and they receive him, in a sense, back from the dead. And I think that as a mother and father, they recognize this, that their time was short with this little boy. That the time was shorter than, than they had hoped and that the window was going to close. And so they began to pour into this child's life. They taught him about the God who made the heavens and the earth. They taught him what it means to have covenant with God. And they taught him of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph, they told him the, the history of God's miraculous provision for their people through Joseph. They taught him that God said, after 400 years, he would lead us out and we would worship him. They told their son that he was special. 
They told him that God's hand was upon his life and that he was, had purpose and design from the Almighty. They prayed over that child. And it says in verse 10 that when the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter and he became her son and Pharaoh's daughter named him. She named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. Isn't that crazy? Pharaoh's daughter names, we actually, amazingly, we don't know what Moses' name is. If you think about it, we don't know his Hebrew name. What did Amran and Jochebed call him? We actually don't know. He is an Egyptian name, and that name Moses, it's a combination of two Egyptian words. Mo means water, and zes means to be drawn, drawn up. To be drawn up from the water. The word implies a deliverance. An exodus from chaos, from the, the chaos of the waters. Uh, he is Moses, the delivered one. He is Moses, the exodus one. He is Moses who is going to deliver and lead God's people in an exodus from slavery. Now, Josephus says some, some interesting things about this. He says this, that there was an Egyptian wise man who prophesied that a deliverer was going to be raised up for the Hebrew people. And he warned the leaders of Egypt that they should kill that deliverer when he comes on the scene. Now he also reports this, that when Moses was a child and handed over to Pharaoh's daughter, Pharaoh's daughter brought him before Pharaoh and Pharaoh welcoming this beautiful child, uniquely beautiful. going to talk about that in a second. That Pharaoh took the crown from his head and he placed, this is some oral history, placed it on the head of Moses, and Josephus says, Moses took the crown off his head, put it on the ground, and stepped on it. (laughs) And at that point, the wise man said, that's him. That's the deliverer. Kill him. And Pharaoh's daughter took him and stole him away. And so, you know, beautiful... Josephus says, so beautiful that people would stop what they were doing to just look at Moses because he was a uniquely beautiful child. Uh, And Josephus even seems to suggest that as a means to insulate Egypt from this supposed deliverer, they sought to train him in all the ways of Egypt, in all of their culture. He had the best of education, the best of experience, schooled in Egyptian university, meant that he was trained in the most advanced culture of that time. You know, they were the pros at science and at at chemistry. He's trained in language arts and writing and public speech and law and religion. You name it, he was trained. Military service, combat, warfare, politics, agriculture, leadership. Moses was trained. This is why... He was able to write the first five books of the Bible, what we call the Pentateuch, because he was very schooled. And you know, I'd say this, nothing with God is ever wasted. Did you know that in your life? God never wastes anything. Say, well, what was that life? What was that about before Jesus? I'm telling you, it won't be wasted. God is going to redeem it. He's going to use it for his purposes and for his glory. God wastes nothing. Everything serves to purpose Everything serves a purpose to train us for the next part of the plan that God has. Josephus says that Moses even led the Egyptian army in several, several decisive battles. He served as their general against the Ethiopians. In fact, they placed him there by a 
a premonition of one of their wise men. He said, we don't know what to do against, against the Ethiopians. They, they said, man, I had this vision, make Moses the leader. And it was like this miraculous uh, saving. Did anybody, hey, did anybody watch the Ten Commandments this week? I kind of suggested that. I've been watching. No, nobody else. You might, well, okay, you guys did. You might want to just watch it for fun. It's a great, it's great. I, I thought, man, that was awesome. Interesting that right in that movie, you know, Moses comes before Pharaoh and he brings all the tribute from Ethiopia and this great battle and victory that he's had. Now, whatever the extra biblical, you know, history is floating around about uh, God's chosen man, this deliverer Moses, one thing's really clear as we begin to get into his story. The guy had identity issues. You know, he wasn't fully accepted by Egypt. He wasn't fully accepted by Israel. Um, He didn't know where he fit. And as he grew older um, and increased in age, he began to sympathize with the people of God. The Hebrews. It says in verse 11, that one day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and he looked on their burdens. And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people. And he looked this way and that and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and he hit him in the sand. Look at, whenever in your life you need to stop and look this way or that way to see if anyone's watching, you're about to make a very poor decision. Catch that. <laughs> And also catch this, that though nobody else may be looking, God is watching. And God sees what other people don't see. Now verse 13 says, he went out the next day and behold, two Hebrews were struggling together and he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? And he answered, who made you prince and judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and he thought, surely this thing is known. Secrets out. The word's out. Now clearly God had a tremendous amount of work to yet do in this man, uh, Moses. He seems to have this sense of what is right and what is wrong. He's identifying with the people of God. Maybe he felt that God was going to use him as a deliverer. Maybe back in the palace he had his... Taylor's working on this red and blue suit with a big D on the chest. Don't know what's going on. Getting the cape ready. But he begins the work in his flesh. And you know, when we begin to work in our flesh, it's always, always, always bound to fail. There's a difference between went and sent. And there's going to need to be for this man, Moses, in terms of the preparation of what God's going to do for him, a, a season in the desert, a, a time alone, alone with God. And in the Bible, those desert experiences that we read about so often always represent this time of breaking where an individual gets into view a proper focus of themselves and, and has an encounter with the living God. We're going to see Moses' encounter with the living God next week. But it says in verse 15, When Pharaoh heard of it, heard that he killed the Egyptian, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian and he sat down by a well. Although he's schooled in all the training of the world, the real making of a man happens in the desert. Did you know that? 
It reached Midian, which was desert, meant crossing the Sinai Peninsula, which is desert. See, in a desert, a man learns that God is right, that God is righteous. In the desert, a man learns that the working of the flesh is a waste of time. In a desert, a man learns that God calls his people, calls his man, his deliverer, not to be a manufacturer, but a distributor. Not to manufacture something in his flesh, but to distribute the work of God. And Moses had manufactured something in his flesh and it had failed. He was 40 years old when he finally sat down by a well. He was dressed like an Egyptian. He walked like an Egyptian. Sounds like a cool song or something. Uh, He'd been trained in the school of the world, but in the desert, he would be trained in the school of God. He would learn to be alone with God. Like David, you know, in the cave of Adullam. Or Paul in the deserts of Arabia. Like John, who was banished to the Isle of Patmos. Or like Elijah, who traveled for 40 days and 40 nights till alone he was with God. Or John the Baptist, who made his very dwelling place in the desert. Like a blind Samson, who had to say to a little boy, lead me and put my hands on the pillars. Moses was being prepared for an encounter with the living God so that he would be a usable tool in the hand of God. See, he wasn't yet the man who would write, in the beginning, God created the heavens. I mean, what, what kind of man does the spirit of God have to develop in and work upon his heart that he would write those words. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was formless. And darkness was over the face of the earth and the spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Well, Moses found himself at a place of water, sitting beside a well. First time in his story that he takes the time to sit by a well. And he's going to have an encounter with God. And so, hey man, Exodus, we're going to have fun, eh? It's going to be good. And, uh, you know, I guess the question is this. In the land of affliction, slavery, are we getting comfy? We need to keep our focus on our eternal home. And we need to know that we're not manufacturers. We're distributors. And And it takes time with God to develop a relationship with God. I want to encourage you this week, as we go from this place, take time to be with God. Take time to be in the word of God. Let him train you and teach you and mold you for the purposes that he has. Man, if you're going through affliction, you need to know this. Turn from the idols and just turn to the living God. Turn from the things that are distracting and just focus in on God and watch him multiply, watch him work, and watch him bless. Amen? Man, let's bow our heads this morning. Prayer. Jesus, we love you. And God, I just thank you for your salvation history, your story, that it's great. It spans thousands of years. It spans um, tens of thousands of years. It spans... 
uh, all the millennia and all of history and all of eternity. Uh, God, your word tells us that before you laid the foundations of the earth, you put this plan in place. And you've been working it out, Lord. You've been working it out. And I thank you, Jesus, that you're our deliverer. I thank you, Jesus, that in many ways, you came in the pattern of Moses, but you're greater than Moses. You are our deliverer. And Jesus, we love you. We want to follow hard after you, Jesus. We want to serve you. We pray, Jesus, that you would make us uh, humble before you. We pray, Jesus, that in our lives, you would bring blessing and multiplication. We pray that, God. We are your people corporately. We pray that you would bless and that you would multiply. We pray, God, that you would make us into the men and women and into the people of God that you desire. And so, Lord, we love you. We trust you. I thank you, Jesus, that, that you are an ark. And so today, Lord, to you we run. May we be found in you, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.